0: All you need is love, all you need is love, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. Were the Beatles correct? All you need is love? Thank you. <faint strains> That's awesome. What is love? First you have the Beatles' description of love as a free form of love. Notice how the music gets a little chaotic toward the end. Love is supposed to be free form. Do whatever I want. Accept me. Tolerance for all. This is one extreme. We also have the other extreme. We have a rigid kind of love. I think of as being a parent, you might hear the term helicopter parent, making sure that your, parent, your kids do not mess up at all. That's a rigid type of love. So we have this spectrum, love versus truth. What's fascinating as we jump into the scripture this morning, Jesus presents another way, a more complete way. This morning, we are in Matthew chapter 22. It's on page 877 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you want to follow along. So as a recap, just to kind of bring you up to speed, the Sadducees were who we discussed last week. They're primarily rulers of the temple and prominent priestly families. They don't believe in the resurrection but they wanted to get into a religious debate with Jesus. And as we see in the story last week, we see Jesus sidestepping or basically addressing the question in a way that demonstrates his knowledge and understanding of who God is and the truth. This week, we have the Pharisees. They were concerned about the Mosaic Law and following it to the best of their abilities. This is where we pick up the story. So let's start. Verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command is the law, in the law is the greatest? So last week the Sadducees got shut down. Jesus demonstrated his knowledge and authority. Now it's the Pharisees' turn. In fact, the Pharisees, if you imagine, they might have kind of chuckled that the Sadducees getting shut down because they're kind of at odds with each other. And so whenever your opponent gets shut down, it's always hooray, right? So now it's the Pharisees' turn. And historically, the Pharisees have spent a large amount of time Debating the 613 commandments that we find in the Old Testament. And they look at it as either light or weighty. Which were most important? This was discussed to no end. I work at FedEx Ground, and sometimes you end up in a situation where you have to give a deposition. I see this going on here. The idea in a deposition is that the opposing counsel will ask you a series of questions, mark down your answers, and then what they will do is they go back and ask the same questions over again to see if you provide a different answer. And I see this with the Pharisees here. They're asking a question in hopes of trapping Jesus into a theological discussion and turning against who they uphold the most. They uphold Moses. They uphold the law. Moses was their guy. Moses is the one that brought the law to the Jewish people. So now, with that in mind, they send, out their, they send out a lawyer, a scribe, an authority on the law of Moses. And the lawyer asks, What command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus responds. He doesn't fall for the false dichotomy. There are only two options, go with Moses or not. Instead, he provides himself as the answer to what the law has been crying out for, the love and the truth together. Going on in verse 37, we see Jesus' response. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command, the second is like it. Love your neighbors as yourself. So, what we see here, Jesus is quoting from the Shema. And if you're not familiar with the Shema, it, there's three parts to it Deuteronomy, for anybody that's taking notes, you can go back and refer to this. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21. Numbers 15, 37 to 41. And the idea of the Shema, at least the sections in Deuteronomy, they would recite these in the morning and in the evening. The idea is that God would be at the forefront of their mind, even to the degree where they would actually write down parts of it or in its entirety, portions of it, and put it on their forehead as a demonstration that they are holier because God's word, the Shema, is right here on their forehead. The idea of God being on the forefront of our mind is a wonderful thing. However, we as humans naturally turn it into a religious practice. So you ask the question, love the Lord your God with all of me, my whole being. How do we do that? First, we have to have a good understanding of what love is. St. Thomas Aquinas states, love is born of an earnest consideration of the object loved. I'll say that again. Love is born of an earnest consideration of the object loved. Love begins as a thought, a consideration, which then leads to an action the action of wanting the best for the object that is loved. I think of when Alyssa and I first started dating. There was a thought. I really like this person. I want to spend time with her. And because of that, I was willing to travel to Rathrum from Central Washington to spend time with her on the weekends. Of course, I was young and made stupid decisions and left late Sunday night. And for anybody that has Driven while tired, you can easily end up bouncing between rumble strips. But besides that point, the idea is I was willing to set aside what I wanted to do in order to spend time with her. I desired to be with her. I thought of her. There were actions that I took to show my love to her. Now, love the Lord your God there is a thought of who he is. The thought would be understanding who God is, creator of the universe. All things are subject to him. The actions could include the spiritual disciplines. If you're not familiar with them, there's meditation or sitting in silence with God. There's prayer, there's fasting, there's reading your Bible, all of these things great things when done with the right mindset of trying to draw closer to God so there's an acknowledgement of who God is being in the presence of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to work we can't do that on our own and honestly I'm not sure how it works but I know it works I've seen it change in my own life As I pursue Christ, there's more love in my heart for the people around me. Through prayer and the constant reminder that the fact is the God of the universe loves me. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. He initiated the love. He acted. And now he calls us, to stop our busy work and join him in his presence. If you want to dive into what love is, I would strongly encourage you, spend time in 1 John, or John in general. There's There's a lot there in regards to love. So we have to be in the presence of God. We have to be mindful that we are in the presence of God. I um, want to share with you a, a quote from Dallas Willard. He's very, uh, he has since uh, left to be with the Lord, but how he lives his life or how he lived his life was in pursuit of that love of God and the spiritual disciplines and being aware that we are always in the presence of God. So he says, a popular saying is, take time to smell the roses. What does this mean? To enjoy a rose, it is necessary to focus on it and bring the rose as fully before our senses and mind as possible. To smell a rose, you must get close and you must linger. When you do so, We delight in it, we love it. Taking time to smell the roses leaves enduring impression of a dear glory that if sufficiently re-engaged can change the quality of our eternal life. The rose in a very special way and more generally the flower, even in its most humble forms, is a fragile but irrepressible witness on earth to a larger world where good is somehow safe. This simple illustration contains profound truths. If anyone is to love God and have his or her life filled with that love, God, in his glorious reality, must be brought before the mind and kept there in such a way that the mind takes root and stays fixed there. So with that, I'm going to ask you to do something a little strange, (laughs) okay? I know there's kids in the room. Kids, if I could have your attention for just a second, we're going to play a little game. We play it in our house. It's called the silent game, okay? All right? And so what I want you to do, kids, The goal is we're going to be quiet for one minute, okay? One minute. Do you think you can do that? One minute, 60 seconds, okay? And what we're going to do during that time, the adults, I want you to take some time and focus on God. Focus on this statement. God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, What does that mean? Think about that. If you feel like you've sufficiently answered that question, the next follow-up, what are the ramifications? So we're gonna do that now. Just take 60 seconds for silence. Ready, begin. All right, now come back. I know that might be a little strange for some of you. We have hectic schedules. We like to fill our schedules. There's a sense of pride potentially in that. But just having that opportunity to take a pause and think about who God is Loving God involves keeping him at the forefront of our mind. And the only way we can do this is through the work of the Holy Spirit because we naturally don't want to do this. And so we enter into prayer and I realize I probably should have started with that for this section. Start with prayer, asking for the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, to meet us where we are. But with the work of the Holy Spirit, it allows us to move on to the next commandment. The second commandment is loving others. I heard this this last week talking about Jesus on the cross. And if you remember, there were a number of sayings for when he was on the cross. But one of them was, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That is not a response that Jesus had to search for. He did not ask himself, what is the proper response as I'm hanging up here on this cross? It was a natural outpouring of God in him. He's spirit-filled and spirit-led are called to be. And we must first have that relationship correct. Because if you're having a challenging situation in your relationship with other people, I would suggest that you look at your relationship with God. Do you spend time with him? Do you ignore him? Do you allow the spirit to work in your life? I'm speaking to myself as well. This is not something that I have mastered by any means. Please do not not take this as condemnation. But once we have the relationship correct, it's easy to love as it's stated in Matthew five. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter five, verse 43. States, starting in verse 43. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your father in heaven. How do we love people? Remember our definition. Love is born of an earnest consideration of the object loved. Pursue the best of other people. And what's funny about that is if everybody's doing that, then everybody's taken care of. Interesting how it works. But pursuing the best in other people is an action. I love going back to this. Love is a verb. Anybody recall DC Talk? (laughs) It's an action. Now I'm going to get... A little uh, pretty practical with you guys here for just a second. You might say, as you sit here this morning, I am not ready to love that person. Going back to Matthew 5, what can we do? We can pray. Prayer is powerful and can be a very loving thing to do. Maybe don't start out praying for the other person. Instead, pray that God could change your heart then as he does because he will then you can start to pray for that other person the one you see as an enemy and watch your love grow as a natural outpouring as you pursue to commune with God through prayer just like Jesus on the cross we can do the same thing with those that we struggle to be in relationship with. Prayer is a weird thing. Let's be honest. We don't understand it. But I think of one of the activities we have for this church. We have everybody every day. We request that you guys send in prayer requests. And then there's a team, a group of people that pray for those prayer requests each and every day. I don't necessarily know everybody in this room very closely, but I do know that when I pray, there's a connection there. When I look at that prayer request and I pray that prayer request, I feel a connection to you. It's a beautiful thing. It's what we're called to do. But this requires a sacrifice, a putting aside of one's wants, desires, in the pursuit of others' needs. This could be a use of your time, your money, a giving of your everything, a sacrificial way of life that is only possible through God, through loving God and the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not an addition to your everyday life schedule. Instead, it starts with the focus on God, and then we add the other things. In a lot of situations, we work the opposite direction. We get all the things we need, and then we put God if we get to it. If you study the Gospels, Jesus is flipping everything upside down. So if we take that and flip it upside down, then we're in the right perspective. So then when we look at things like 1 Corinthians, jump over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. You might uh, recognize this uh, scripture. It's used uh, a lot in uh, weddings, and um, so it may be pretty familiar to you. But when you read it, it says, Chapter 13, starting in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrong. It goes on, this is not a list that we go, I must do this, 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 and this in order to love people. This is a benchmark for how are we in our relationship to God. So please don't look at that list as a, I have to do these things. This list should be able to look at it and go, yes, I am growing in my knowledge and understanding and relationship with God. And this is the natural outpouring. This is not additional work. And unfortunately, in so many situations, we look at it that way. We go, this is what I must strive to do. Once I do that, I can check it off and move on to the next thing. That's not what we're called to. I think of Jesus. His burden is light. He is simply calling us into relationship to commune with him. And then we can experience him more fully. Looking at verse 40. It states, all the law and the prophets demand, uh, all excuse me, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. The law and the prophets were calling out for love. The law shows how we fall short in our living up to the standard in which God has placed. That's truth, okay? We can't live up to the standard. If you think you can, the Ten Commandments. Boom, there you go. But then the prophet called out for a leader that would reconcile the Jews to God. That is love, to be in right standing with God. And up till Jesus, there wasn't anyone that could do that. No one embodied both truth and love at the same time. And so we hear Jesus in Matthew 5 state, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Instead, he came to fulfill it. Jesus became a man and lived a perfect life, died and rose again, demonstrating his love for us, at the same time, fulfilling the demands of the law. A penalty had to be paid. The Pharisees did not understand this. They did not understand what Jesus was about. They did not understand that God would become man and do what Jesus did. They instead envisioned someone that would restore Israel and only Israel. So then Jesus turns it back on the Pharisees, looking at verse 41. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David. Jesus flips it back on the Pharisees. He has allowed them to ask questions up to this point. But now he asks the question, what do you think about the Messiah? Jews believed in a non-deity Messiah, a human political military leader from the line of David. We see in 2 Samuel 7, an eternal kingdom is promised to David. They respond with David. (laughs) And for anybody that's grown up in the church and been in Sunday school, the answer is Jesus, right, to every question? That's exactly what they're doing here. The answer to every question is David. And I think that's part of the reason why Matthew does... A great job emphasizing son of David because this book is written primarily to Jews we see it in Matthew 1 talking about the lineage of Jesus from the family of David Matthew 15 22 the Canaanite woman have mercy on me Lord son of David Matthew 21:9, triumphal entry Hosanna to the son of David Son of David was only a partial answer in regards to the Messiah. Look at verse 43. He asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? So we notice here, first, that David is inspired by the Spirit. David is proclaiming a messianic proclamation because he is inspired by the Spirit. And Jesus is quoting Psalms 110 here. And a fascinating note, Psalms 110 is actually the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's a messianic psalms. In other words, it's stating something about the coming Messiah. We also see here, the Lord declared to my Lord, So you have David stating the Lord declared to his Lord. Now in this culture context, you do not refer to somebody that follows you in lineage. So Jesus is downstream from David. David would not refer to him as his Lord. This context always works back the other direction. It's the elders that are the Lord. So what's going on here? What's fascinating is the Lord, the word here in Psalms 110 is Yahweh, declares to my Lord Adonai, which is a meaning for majesty, a royal title, referring to the Messiah. And the Messiah was going to sit at the right hand of Yahweh, of God until He put your enemies to under your feet. The Messiah on the right hand is a place of honor. He, Hebrews talks about Jesus as equal deity. And then we see everything will be subject to the Messiah. In these times, you see the term put your enemies under your feet. It's essentially putting your foot on the neck of your foe in defeat as you conquer them. So everything is under submission to the Messiah. So David would not call the Messiah son, but instead Lord, because the Messiah would be the God-man, God and man combined perfectly together. And this is not what the Pharisees were expecting. They thought the Messiah was going to be this great man and king that would conquer the Romans and restore Israel. However, if they were willing to take a step back and see the fuller picture, they would see that the Messiah, Jesus, was going to be both God and man and accomplish way more than the rest just the restoration of Israel. And this leaves them speechless. See in verse 46, no one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared question him anymore. No one could answer because they couldn't come to terms with the fact that the Messiah would be both man and God. They would rather fight against the obvious. We see in Matthew the genealogy. We see Jesus healing people. We see him feeding people. We see the knowledge that he has from God. The people are astonished. They are amazed at his teachings. They would rather fight against that, deny it, push it aside. Obviously, this can't be true. And as a result, instead of asking if Jesus was the Messiah and seeking him, they stopped asking questions. They couldn't get over the idea that the Messiah was going to be more than just a man. So I have to ask this morning, what is your response? Are you simply going to shy away, avoid the obvious? Who is the Messiah to you? Have you taken the first step toward loving God, the first commandment, accepting his love for you, and then through the work of the Holy Spirit, claiming allegiance to him, allowing him to be Lord over your life, subjecting all things in your life to his rule? If not, I pray that you would allow your creator, your God, to love you as he so desires, to be in relationship with you. He loves you and wants that relationship. Now, for those that are believers, you love thing. Is he your first priority? Or you or do you allow the busyness of life to consume you? If so, I pray that you would set aside that busyness, reorganize your life, flip it upside down, and make God the priority in all that you do. I know it sounds like work, and hopefully I conveyed the fact that it is not actually work. It is simply resting, like I did for one minute this morning, resting in who God is. in allowing him into our hearts, in allowing him to work as only he can. So now as we come to the time of communion, just ask that you, ask that question of yourself. Jesus as the Messiah, the God-man, came and died on the cross for us, that we may have life. He loved us. He initiated it. He wanted that relationship with us. And so as you take the cup, eat the bread, drink the juice, think about that. The fact that Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to come and die a horrible, brutal death on the cross for you to pay your penalty because he loves you just that much. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur Podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.